two different lines and you have to tow the other team across the line. And if you've seen this done with a number of people, a lot of times there are people in the middle of that line that are tugging. Sometimes they can get lifted off the ground because it's getting so much tension is pulled back and forth. I've seen some uh, summer camps will even uh, take a tractor and dig a hole in the center and fill it full of water. And so then at that point, you have to pull tug of war. And as you get farther and farther across, you get pulled into uh, the water. And so you know for certain at that point that you have lost uh, tug of war. Uh, Politically speaking, Right now, we are in the middle of a tug of war, to say the least. Uh, kids, your parents understand this tug of war. They're being pulled back and forth, one side or the other. They're being pulled to the right, and then the left is telling them to be pulled uh, back to the left. We haven't really been able to figure out which side we want to be on, because most of us actually would be much more comfortable, much closer to the center uh, than what, what are being forced upon us. We're being dragged back and forth, left and right. We don't have any idea uh, of where we're going to end up at the end. We feel like we're that red bandana and at the end of the day it just is going to get pulled one way or another and it leaves us all feeling less than happy about the situation. So that's really kind of the nature of what's going on in our country, the nature of what's going on in this room. At some point we're going to have to cast a ballot and it's almost as though uh, wherever that line is being tugged at that moment is where your heart gets forced into and there's some tension in that and we'll talk about that in a minute. The word division means there's actually two visions. Where there are two visions, a divide exists. Uh, Where there are two visions, where two different ideas of how things should be done, there becomes this divide, like that water that's dug in the middle of the tug-of-war. And in various cultures, particularly in our nation, uh, the political left and right, these two visions create a fault line that we get dragged into and dragged across. And here we call that the Democrats, the Republicans. We call that blue and red states. We call that Hillary and Trump. We call that Democratic donkey and the Republican elephant. That's what's going on. But as Christians, it's difficult for us to see what's going on there. On one hand, we believe that people were made in God's image. In the Garden of Eden, God created man. He said, you were made in my image. And so therefore, there's something good that is going on there. Uh, we, we realize that if Jesus is involved in our lives and if Jesus is working in us, that, that there should be a change and there should be some positive outlook for a better future. On the other hand, we also know that those are, there are many of those who have never met Jesus, who would never have, have pursued after the ways that we see in Scripture that we are taught to live and taught to believe. And so because of that, we know that they're going to be politically and everywhere else in life pulling us to the opposite direction, pulling us in a way that we would rather not be. How then do we live in a world that is constantly in divide and constantly in struggle? And how do we interact with a world where everything is tainted? The foundations, it feels like, are are corrupt. Everything's been chewed away. And the brokenness of sin, as we learn in the Garden of Eden, that sin has come into our lives, and now it infiltrates everything that we do. The brokenness and the sin in this world is all around us. And the institutions that we're involved in, that, that we work for, that we're even engaged in every way. And when you pull back the covers, you realize that people are rotten. And when they are rotten people, they hurt one another. We live in a world where individuals are broken. We live in a world where institutions are broken. How do we manage this? How do we deal with this? What do we do now? Let me illustrate this in this way. Everyone take out your right or your left hand and hold it out like this. Okay. Then take your thumb and touch it to any one of your fingers or all of them if you'd like. 
Okay, successfully. Okay, so we've all done this. This means this establishes that you are a primate. Congratulations. You are a primate. And, and parents, this is success for you because some of you are looking down the road and you're like, son, I just want to make sure that you can still do that because I'm not certain that you're part of the rest of the human race uh, at times, right? So if you can touch your fingers together, there's something that is different about us than the rest of the animal kingdom. Uh, we can do incredible things that the rest of the animal kingdom cannot do. No other animals can do these things. You have in that, that grasp, in that you have enough pressure that you can reach down and pick up a contact lens and put it in your eye. And in the same way, you, if you're inclined to do so, if you're good enough to do so, you might grab a baseball and throw a 90 or even a 100 mile an hour baseball because of the pressure that you can put on that and the torque that you can put on that is all within that same grip. God has made us uniquely and wonderfully. But where if you look at all of life, you realize that there are some things you're going to need to have some tension with. There are some things that that tension is going to remain. There are some things that you're going to have to create tension. You're going to have to create pressure. It needs to be there. If you uh, took today and took your thumbs and taped it to the side of your hands, and kids, you actually might want to do this at home because you look like a fool and it would be fun. So, so take your hands and try to go throughout the rest of the afternoon with your thumbs taped to your fingers, and you'll realize really how different it is. You realize that you lose the ability to make progress, but you also lose that tension. So when you think about it, we have to, this is your first fill-in if you're filling things in with us this morning. Inside of your bulletins, there's a little card that has different blanks that I ask you to fill in as we go to kind of keep you tracking along. The first fill-in would be living with the tension. Living with the tension. We are in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, and the kids are just in here this week, but adults, we've been moving through this sermon series. This is the eighth week in this sermon series. We, we realize that Christians need to engage with rulers and systems that, that dominate our life, and how do we manage it? How do we do that? And 3,000 years ago, uh, this book was written by King Solomon, and King Solomon is actually at the top of the food chain. He's the one in charge, but he's the one who's going to give us some instructions on how you deal with uh, dominating king and how do you deal with rulers and authorities. He gives us wise counsel to navigate living under authority while living under God's authority as well. So I ask that question, how do you live within that tension? We need that tension. We need to realize that it's necessary for us to live, and I'll come back to that in a moment, but the first way that we live with attention, this is a fill-in, is to respect human authority. Is to respect human authority. We're beginning in chapter 8, verse 2. So if you've got your Bibles, look at Ecclesiastes chapter 8, verse 2. It says, Obey the king's command, I say, because you took an oath before God. Now, we talk about respecting authority. I can't think of any movement, any social movement, particularly by young people. There's nothing like that that is sweeping the nation by any means that has to do with respecting authority. I, and, and in fact, myself, as a, as a pastor of a church, it's a Baptist church, that means that I'm part of the Protestant movement, which means that our foundational principles are all behind the fact that we protested, we broke away from the authority that was there. And so the idea that we are in a nation as well that, that was developed, we live in a country that was developed because it had to break away from the authority, the rule that they saw in Europe. And so here we are 
Here we are, and then uh, what we see here is how Solomon is giving us the, the authority to go forward, or the way that we go forward is do this, obey the king's commands. Why? Because you took an oath before God. What is he saying? Ultimately, honor God in all that you do. Remember that those are in power are only in that power because God has allowed them to be in that position that they are in. They can remove you. They can fire you. They can discipline you. They can send you to the office, kids. They are in a position of authority. That police officer is in a position of authority. That teacher is in a position of authority. That politician has been voted into that spot. He's in a position of authority. Verse 3. Do not be in a hurry to leave the king's presence. Do not stand up for a bad cause, for he is going to do whatever he pleases. Pick your battles carefully. Pick your battles carefully. Not every hill is worth dying on. Not every hill is worth dying on. Not every cause is equally just. And there's some people out there, maybe you're one of them, that's looking for a cause, looking for something to fight about, looking for a reason to go to battle with authority. And that ends up, at the end of the day, being a situation that's within you, not a situation uh, that's the authority's fault. Now, there are things that we all do wrong. There are things that authority does wrong. But when we're going to pursue this passage and dig into this passage a little bit, at the beginning, we need to understand that they are in authority. God has allowed that to happen. God has put them in authority. And it's our responsibility, biblical responsibility, to submit to that authority. Verse 4. Since a king's word is supreme, who can say to him, what are you doing? Whoever obeys his command will come to no harm. The wise heart will know the proper time and procedure. For there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, though a person may be weighed down by misery. Solomon is acknowledging here that there are situations that are miserable. There are times where things are less than desirable. But even in those situations, he says there is a good time. There is a proper time. Uh, Look for the God-given time and process by which to do the right thing the right way at the right time for the right reason. On the home, in the job, at church, in the government, we need to look for opportunities to do the right thing at the right time using the right procedure because we believe that God has given us that opportunity to move and act for change in what you believe is right. But unless you feel like change has happened already or unless you feel like it's your responsibility to take things into your own hands and go into the the ways that are not right, the ways that are not honorable, the ways that are not pure and holy and just, you you are now sliding into an area that you are no longer under God's direction and God's authority. Because now you've no longer submitted to the authority above you. So how do you live within that tension? How do you live within that tension of knowing that there's change that needs to happen, knowing there's a responsibility you see of what needs to happen and how you're going to act and interact with that, but yet you don't know when you do that and how you do that. And you get to a point where you say, I just can't do this anymore. I just can't work here anymore. Take this job and shove it. I'm moving to Canada. Or some of my friends in the military, I'm joining the Marine Corps so that dad can't tell me what to do anymore. (laughs) In the rest of verses 7 through 9, Solomon reminds us 
We don't have control of many of the things that we are used to and comfortable with, and yet we don't throw a fit about. We have no control over the weather and how it affects us. Absolutely no control. You've taken a trip to the coast, maybe it was for spring break, and you said, I'm going down south, we're going to have a great time. And all seven days that you were there, it was gorgeous in Buffalo. It was 92 degrees here, and you were in the middle of a thunderstorm the entire time that you were there. And you had to drive both ways, back and forth, in the snow and in the ice. You have no control over that. Some of you are nodding with me like, you're like, yeah, that was this year. I did that. And last year. Oh, and the year before as well. You have no control over the weather. So how do you live within that tension? First, we said you need to respect, respect human authority. Secondly, respect divine authority. This is picking up in verse 10. So fill that in. Respect divine authority. Verse 10. Then too, I saw the wicked buried, those who used to come and go from the holy place and receive praise in the city where they did this. This too is meaningless. Verse 11, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. The world is full of injustice. The world is full of it. And when Solomon was looking around, and and he's a wise man, he looks in the society that he was living in, in the world that he was living in, he sees some of the exact same things that we see today. Wicked people get big funerals, and people come up and say all kinds of nice things about them and how they live their life, and it's all a lie. What's not being said was that their life was a waste and a ruin, and they hurt people and they damaged people, but that's never what's said at a funeral. And Solomon looks at this, he says, how can this go on? How do we see people paying homage to someone who is so unjust? He says, criminals are getting away with their crimes, which only encourages more criminals to try to get away with their crimes as well. I think it was three weeks ago, and here in New York State, they just had, they had to pass the law, it seems ludicrous to me, they had to pass a law that if you are in prison, if you have committed a felony, that you could no longer collect your pension from the state. So if you worked for the state, if you were a politician, if you had done something for the state and you had gotten yourself into trouble, made a fool of yourself, you could continue to collect that pension while in prison. That is ludicrous. In Solomon's terms, it's all meaningless. So it's a waste of time. How could this happen? What's the key then to keeping our head on straight when you look at all this and it's all going around us? Solomon says this, you need to fear God. You must fear God. Verse 12. Although a wicked person who commits a hundred crimes may live a long time, I know, he says, that it will go better with those who fear God, who are reverent before Him. The only difference between an ungodly life and a godly life is those who remember God and those who forget God. Those who keep their eye on Him and those who go through life thinking that they are the center of attention. If there were no police and prisons in this world, if there was no way you were going to get in trouble for anything that you would do, Solomon says, then everyone would live however they would want to live. But if you knew that you were going to be thrown into prison, if you knew that you were going to get a ticket when you were going a certain speed over the speed limit, if you knew that you had kids, you knew that you had to wear a helmet when you ride your bicycle, if you knew that those things were the law, if you knew that those things were important, then maybe you would behave and maybe you would line up. You see, God's justice may be delayed, but it doesn't mean that it's not coming. 
justice may be delayed as he waits for sinners to repent, but he will not be denied. Those who persist in sin without ever turning to the Lord Jesus Christ, they are not getting away with anything. As we live our lives, we have to have that concept of what the authority of Jesus Christ is, of who God is, and He is in control of all things. The Bible portrays in Revelation uh, that, that Jesus is like this mighty sheriff riding up on a white horse, kids. He rides up. He takes care of business. He rounds up all of those who are rebels. And he, he takes those who have committed crimes and he, he rounds them up and he takes them to court. It's called the white throne judgment. And many will be sentenced there to an eternal prison. The picture that Revelation paints of God is that justice comes through Jesus. That justice comes through Jesus. So how do you live with that tension? How do you respect human authority when again and again and again you see that to be corrupt and wicked and evil as Solomon is describing here, you see it happening again and again and how do you respect divine authority when it seems like God is allowing good things to happen to the bad people, when God is allowing uh, bad things to happen to good people? He, he seems to be allowing that to happen. How can you continue to respect that authority as well? To go back to my previous illustration, how do you live with the tension? Don't cut off your thumbs. Don't cut off your thumbs. Solomon's going to say in verse 15, life is going to be enjoyed. Solomon's way of saying, life is a gift from God. Make the most of it. Carpe diem, seize the day. Let's read it together. Verse 15. So I commend the enjoyment of life because there is nothing better for a person under the sun than to eat and drink and be glad. Then joy will accompany them in their toil all the days of the life that God has given them under the sun. All the days of the life that God has given them. One day we will all die. One day we will all kick the proverbial bucket. So knowing that we will die, Solomon confirms the consensus that life has enough misery, enough responsibility, enough mess of itself that we need to make an effort to have some fun, to enjoy life, make some memories. This memory list or this to-do list is often called your bucket list. These are the things that you're going to do before you kick the bucket. In 2008... Uh, we did a sermon series. I was at a church. Some of you met Tommy Hargrove, who was a former pastor of mine when he was here. As I was getting started as a church here, he came and spoke. Tommy was our pastor. And uh, at, at the church there, fall of 2008, he did a, a teaching series called 30 Days to Live. 30 Days to Live. If you had 30 days to live, what would you do so that you had uh, no regrets at the end of 30 days? And so I was there. I was on staff. I was a worship leader, a student pastor. <coughs> And I got to the end of that sermon series, and in Solomon's words, this was the most meaningless sermon series I have ever heard. That was what I came to at that point. Little did I know that my wife Erin was carrying our third child at the time. His name was Josiah. Little did I know that he would not live past his first birthday. Little did I know while going through that preaching series that I would have to talk to my two and three-year-old daughters and that their first experience with death was not going to be with a goldfish, but it was going to be their younger 
brother. Little did I know that our marriage up to this point that had not received really any conflict that we were going to have to work with, that we were going to go through this season and we were well grounded in biblical principles, but all of a sudden what was going to rock our world and just try to divide us and tear us apart was this thing called loss and grief. How do you live with the tension? Well, start living while you live. Start living while you live. We're going into chapter 9 here. I'll explain more as we go. We are hesitant to come to grips with our impending death. We would rather avoid any discussion about it whatsoever. After all, death is a depressing subject. Who wants to be depressed? Why would you get up in the morning and plan to be depressed here today? So instead of using the word uh, death or dead, we say passed away or returned home or gone to a better place or went to be with the Lord or sleeping with Jesus. Maybe if you're a little more crass, you say uh, we are taking a dirt nap. Uh, You've kicked the bucket. You're buying the farm. You're cashing up the chips. You're pushing up daisies. You're biting the dust or you've croaked. It's depressing. I think I've learned Solomon is teaching here as well. We are not prepared to live until we are prepared to die. We are not prepared to live until we are prepared to die. We have to come to grips with this, and this is a fill-in. Death is certain. Death is certain. Verse 2 of chapter 9. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who, suffer, who, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so it is with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so it is with those who are afraid to take the oath. Verse 3, this is the evil and everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. Instead of denying death, he talks about its reality. He deals with it here. Everyone dies. The righteous guy who goes to church every week and the wicked man who is an alcoholic and steals a car, they both die at the end of the day. The good woman who ties faithfully and gives to the poor and takes care of those overseas and has adopted uh, multiple children and has uh, helped multiple people, Uh, she, as well as the woman who's at work who lies about her and gets her fired from her job because she says that she has done something untrue and unjust, that they both will die. My son was born with HLHS. We learned at the 20-week ultrasound, and this was at this point, virtually, we had lived our entire lives with no tension. We had lived our lives with no thumbs, if you will. As 20-week ultrasound, we learned that he had a condition called HLHS. It's a condition of hypoplastic left heart syndrome where he's only born with half a heart. The other portion is just missing. It's not there. And there's no reconstructive surgery. There's nothing you can do to, like, recreate that. It's not there, and it's not coming at all. We learned at that point that he had a 70 to 80% chance of survival when we first heard the diagnosis at his 20-week ultrasound. From there, we got in our cars and drove the following week, I believe, we drove down to Charleston, South Carolina, which was a number of miles away. And in Charleston, South Carolina is MUSC, the Medical University of South Carolina. 
and there we learned that he had an additional complication called the atrial septal defect, which was going to create a problem because now <coughs> not only was his heart going to be damaged, but his lungs were going to be severely damaged at birth. So now Josiah's chances, Josiah was going to have a 30 to 40% chance to live. This was all before he was born, and it wasn't until well after that, even when they are quoting those numbers to us, that 30 to 40% chance to live in surgical terms means that 30 days after the surgery is complete, he might still be alive. That's success. 30% success rate that he would live for 30 days is really what they were saying. Not to a parent, there's 100% or there's 0%. There's absolutely nothing in between. So even in the best case, one in a million scenarios, everything going perfectly, uh, we learned again that, that he was, uh, that, that they had not had that many children with this particular defect, this complication of defects at that hospital. This was not a good scenario. And so no matter what, a one in a million scenario, even if everything worked out perfectly, if our son lived to be 20 years old or maybe 30 years old, because that was probably the very best that anyone even with one of these defects had lived to this point, that we still were going to outlive our child, that we still would have to bury our son. Scripturally here, Solomon finds this scenario outrageous. He says the worst thing about living on this earth, the worst thing that we're up against is the fact that we're all lumped together in the same fate. We all die. We are not prepared to live until we are prepared to die. We have to come to grips that first, death is certain, and secondly, we have to seize the day, carpe diem, we have to see that life is uncertain. Josiah was born May 20th. 2009 in a crowded operating room. Crowded so much that normally uh, there would be a C-section room, that type of operating room. They were moved to the main operating room because there were so many doctors that were going to be there. Basically, the head of every department was the one who was going to be in that room. I didn't find out until that morning that I didn't rate high enough on the seniority scale that I was not going to be allowed to be in that room. And so I had to watch painfully as doctors rushed in and rushed out. And as medical students, because this was an anomaly, something that they would only see maybe once in their lifetime or trying to peer through the doors to see what is going on in there as this new baby was being delivered. And I was the distance of this room awake and only looked through that tiny window and, and hope that someone would come out and tell me what was going on. So he was born that morning, May the 20th. Early in the morning, he was immediately whisked away he came in a cart. The doctors were good enough to come right towards me, and they slowed down. They didn't stop. They just kind of slowed down and, like, slid around the corner and let me see him before they took off to the operating room. Or the heart cath is what it actually was. He had an eight-hour procedure that day, a heart cath pro procedure. And we got updates throughout the day, maybe an hour, two hours apart, that they were trying to burn a hole or create a hole in his heart so that the blood would not start to cycle in reverse and not get any of it to the lungs. And we were naive at that point. They would tell us, hey, we tried it with, with a needle and a balloon and that didn't work. So we're going to try something else. We're going to try this. We're going to try that. We had no idea how complicated it really was. And so eight hours later, he was able to get through that surgery, through that procedure. 13 days old, 
he went through a procedure called the Norwood. The Norwood was where they crack open the heart, pull the rib cage open, and they were doing surgery on a 13-day-old baby. And if you hold up your fist, kids, that your heart is the size of your fist. And so if you think of an infant, of really what they were doing, that, that tiny little heart is what they were spending hours and hours and hours pulling apart and replumbing and, and trying to make this heart work at least a little bit in the coming days. Life was uncertain. Before that surgery, we were, we were told the doctors had, had gone through everything, gone through it multiple times, and the surgeon sat down with us, and we had already signed all the paperwork for this one type of surgery. And then he had to sign all the paperwork for this other type of surgery. And he didn't know the night before which one that they should do until they opened him up in the morning. They had no idea what they were going to do. And so they told us, he said, we don't know if we've got 48 hours, but if you want to wait 24 hours because you're not ready for the possibility of losing your child tomorrow, we could do that. This is the surgeon. This is the guy who's going to perform surgery. And so we went... We left the hospital in tears and we signed our paperwork and said we, we're going to move forward with it or we felt like we should. Got dinner, fast food, tried to eat something. And of all things, God spoke to us through Arby's. I don't know if you're an Arby's fan. I'm certainly not as big a fan now as I was back then, but I loved Arby's. And my favorite thing from Arby's was the jalapenos you've had them before you dip them in the berry sauce and it's a delicious taste of heaven so we sat out in this foy- out in this courtyard area and we ate our Arby's and wouldn't you know it we dump out the bag of jalapenos and there was two of them because they put them in a fryer like you do everything at fast food there was two jalapenos fused together in the perfect shape of a heart And we bawled and cried and hugged each other and said, okay, this is the night before we we thought we could lose our son. And through a jalapeno heart of all things is what we started to call it. God spoke to us in a very real way. God made it very real to us. And from that moment on, the rest of Josiah's life and the rest of our time there in the hospital, we, we realized and grabbed a hold, it's time that we got on to living rather than worrying about dying. It was time that we moved forward. Solomon reminds us we can't work on our bucket list after you've kicked the bucket. You can only work on it while you're there. Life is busy, so busy, in fact, that all of our other to-do lists keep us from working on that to-do list. We can let the laundry, the dirty dishes, we can let the yard work, we can let the lawn care, we can tell that email inbox, it'll all keep us so busy that we never work on those other things, the important business of actually living out our life. The point that Solomon is making here is crucial. Don't let the mundane duties of your everyday life, don't let them rob you of the joy of life. Don't let the pain of life rob you from the joy of life. Don't let the tension of life rob you of the joy of life. Instead, understand that God has a bucket list for you to pursue. The list might surprise you. It begins here in verse 7. I'll move through them quickly. Add joy to your meals would be the first one. Verse 7, go eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved 
what you do. Secondly, add joy to your routines. Verse 8, always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Thirdly, add joy to your marriage. Verse 9, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun. Add joy to your career. Verse 10 says, whatever you put your hands to, do with all your might. So add joy to your meals. Add joy to your routines. Add joy to your marriage. Add joy to your career. Add joy to it. Get on with living. Our son Josiah lived 249 days and passed away January the 24th, 2010. He added so much joy to our lives. He had three heart casts. He had two open heart surgeries and thousands of other procedures. We squeezed our kids tighter and we did the best that we could to put joy into their lives as well, to, to make memories with them. In that eight-month period, we went to the beach. We ran 5Ks. We rode our bikes all over Charleston. Uh, we shared a family meal nearly every evening. Uh, it's not practical. It was not easy. I was trying to work a job 300 miles away. I would come to work for four days and then go and be in Charleston with my son and my family for three days. And the next week it was three days and, and four days. We made that work. We moved six times in those eight months. We had to have a place to stay and it was a, a vacation spot for many. So if we were willing to move, they would allow us to use their vacation home for a few weeks or a month. We moved six times in those eight months. Josiah remained at that ICU status the entire time. All but three days, he was in the hospital. Life is uncertain. That's your next fill-in. Life is uncertain. I was given a gift, without question. Yes, my son, but Josiah taught me how to fight to live. I watched that boy fight day after day after day to live, and he taught me how to do the same. God is so good. And he invites you to go ahead and to have some good times before your time is up. So when we look at Scripture, we see what Solomon is doing here. Well, how does Jesus help us? How does he point us? How do we live through this tension, this tug of war between life and death? At the end of the day, this tension is what helps us to believe in him. Turn over to the New Testament, if you will. John chapter 11, moving quickly here. John chapter 11. That tension helps us to believe in him. Living and believing in him. This is a fill-in. Living and believing. John chapter 11. God is in control. God is in control. The backdrop of what is happening here, if you're not familiar with this passage, this is a passage about Lazarus. And Lazarus has died. This is a dear friend of Jesus. The only time in Scripture, with the shortest verse in Scripture, is Jesus wept. He wept over his friend, Lazarus, who had died. But his friends, his family, all of them who had asked him to be there, they knew that Jesus could heal him. But instead, he waited for more than four days. Why would you do that? There's tension there. There's a tug of war between life and death, and Jesus chose not to engage. Some tension there. Some struggle there. Why would you do that? He 
wants to show that God is in control. Verse 40, chapter 11, verse 40. And Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for you, that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said on this account, for all the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. He said, I waited for four days. I allowed him to be in this tomb. We're here now. The King James Version says that is, the body doth stink. The body stinketh. That was for you kids. Just wanted to put that out there. It's been too long. But Jesus has waited. He says, why? Because God's in control and I did this so that you would know and so you could see and believe in the glory of God. He goes on. This is a fill-in. Jesus has set you free. Watch what he does here. Verse 43. After he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips. His face was wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. He was all bound up in his grave clothes. He comes kind of hopping his way out of the grave. Unbind him, loose him, set him free, Jesus says. So that why? That the Jews and many of those who were there with Mary, so that they would see what he did and believe in him. If you saw this, would you believe in him? If you saw what he did, would you believe in him? To personalize this story once again, those three days that we were home with our son Josiah, it was 300 miles away from the hospital. We had, he had, his status had not changed, but we had changed. We had learned how to take care of him. We had proven that we were able to do most of what needed to be done. He was put in an ambulance and sent the 300 miles to our home. Got home at about 6 or 7 in the evening that night. And wouldn't you know, if we took care of him all evening long, we laid down, went to sleep about 2 in the morning. And at 5 o'clock in the morning, all the alarms went ballistic. And we ran in and we found ourselves with a son who's motionless. His, his skin condition, everything had changed. Uh, there, there, was, there was something different. We, we had gone through our CPR training and done it on a dial, but this was, this was a dead and lifeless child. And we're doing CPR and running and calling 911 and doing all that we could. And there was nothing going correctly. And he had, a, he had what's called a tracheostomy. So he had a hole in his, in his neck. And we changed something out and trying and trying and trying to get air into his lungs. And wouldn't you know it, after about 15 minutes of doing this, he took one breath. He took one breath and everything changed. One breath, and his complexion changed. Everything changed. We knew he was going to be all right. So I'd seen with my own eyes, I, I, the, the, this boy, this child, my, my son, who was dead and lifeless on this table, there was nothing that could be done. He took one breath, and everything changed. Do you see the correlation there? Jesus has breathed life into our lungs, and now we are free we are free indeed. We go from being dead and lifeless and not having a chance in the world to now He has breathed life into us. 
My son lived for another 30 days after that. And Lazarus, who here, he was raised from the dead. Jesus himself raised him from the dead. But there was another funeral at some point. He did die, but his life was forever changed. There were those who responded to that. There, there are three different types of people who responded to him there, and there's probably three different types of people here who are responding to what I'm saying right now. There are those who watch this and watch what Jesus did with Lazarus, and they almost immediately picked up stones. They wanted to stone Jesus because they hated what he was doing. Those who had been hurt, those who were angry at God, those who said, I don't want to hear it, I don't want to see it, I'm not listening. And then there's the second group of people. The second group of people who, who, who looked at what was happening to Lazarus and realized that they too need to take off the grave clothes. Some of you have been raised to life. God has breathed life into you and you're still waddling around with straps of cloth around you as if those grave clothes were necessary for you anymore. Sin still has its grip on you. There are still things of this world that you allow to tie you down and keep you from what God has set you free from. And there were those in that crowd that day as well. But there, as we saw in verse 45, there were those who met Jesus that day and believed in him. And there may be many of you here today as well who need to meet Jesus for the first time to see who it is, he who can breathe life into this tug of war, this tension that we struggle with day after day after day. It is through that he breathes life into that and changes all of that and makes it useful and makes it different. Why? Because he says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He breathes life into all that we do. Kids, you're in here this morning, and I know that this story is a little bit tough to hear. My kids are here this morning. They've heard this a few times. But at the end of the day, when you walk through that with them and you say, your, your little brother died, why does God allow that to happen? Don't you think that they're going to be wrestling with that the rest of their lives, as I have? And the only way that you get past that is believing that Jesus is who he says he is when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life.